welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Tasha Stanton. Tasha is an Associate Professor of Clinical Pain Neuroscience at the University of South Australia and is a prodigious researcher in a wide variety of areas with a current focus on pain science. I invited Tasha on the podcast to discuss the concept of perceived lumbar spine stiffness and whether this directly maps onto objective measures of joint mobility. In fact, Tasha has a great paper published on this very topic, which we delve into in this discussion. Enjoy. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will help keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month, which means more than 1 million Australian dollars in total has been donated to Clinico since it was founded. Shoulder physio listeners can get 60 days free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com shoulder hyphen physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Tasha Stanton. Okay. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm joined today by Tasha Stanton. Hi, Tasha. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. It's lovely to meet you. As I said before, I'm a long-time reader of your work, so it's really cool to see your smiling face in person. (laughs) So so the first question I want to ask you, Tasha, is more of an intro. Who are you? Uh, What do you do? And what does a normal week look like for you at the moment? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm uh, an associate professor um, at the University of South Australia, and I'm technical uh, role is associate professor of clinical pain neuroscience, but I have background training as a physiotherapist. And I've kind of dabbled in lots of different areas of research, a little bit of spinal biomechanics, um, more public health epidemiology and treatment prediction, and then really got into to pain science, I would say over, well, you know, since I finished my PhD. So I guess my what sort of things look at like for me at the moment is um. Uh, lead a group out of um, the University of South Australia within the research concentration of impact and health. And basically, at the moment, I feel like I, I kind of wish this was on a different week because <laughs> the, the whole week for me has been grant writing. Um, so that's a, a big part of a researcher's job. And usually a typical week involves, you know, lots of meetings with different um, PhD or master's students working on their manuscripts, usually preparing um, a talk um, for either a conference or for, you know, a local or a um, organization presentation and then trying to sneak in a little bit of paper reading (laughs) but I must admit I think most of my research paper reading is when I review papers for journals. (laughs) 
Yeah, it gets that way, doesn't it? You, you sort of lose that reading for passion's sake, unfortunately. Yeah, but I think that's what is beautiful about students is because, you know, they're they're just delving into this area that they're so passionate about. And there's like that little bit of pride when it's like, my gosh, you've surpassed me in like two weeks. Like, this is fantastic. You're the expert on this now. So that's, I don't know. I think that's a very gratifying part of the job. Cool. Well, that sounds busy. So good luck. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite questions, Tasha, is, and it sheds light on on the individual behind the public persona, I guess. What book are you reading right now or what TV show are you watching? You can pick both or pick either up to you. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to admit, I actually have not been reading books in the last little bit. And I think it's due to the amount of scientific reading and things I'm doing. But one of the, the shows that I've been, you know, really loving um, is Ricky Gervais' uh, Netflix show, Afterlife. I know I'm way behind the times, but and I'm actually kind of watching it again. But Man, I love that show. Like it is, yeah. it's like a heartbreaking show, but it's just so real and so yeah. raw. And sometimes I feel like with all the craziness that's going on in the world with uprest and upheaval, and it's really nice to just have a focused story and you see those characters grow. I don't know, it's that hope, it's that change. Yeah, I absolutely love that show. <laughs> it's a beautiful show. It, it is heartbreaking. I cried in it oh, in several seriously. occasions. Seriously, it's like ugly crying as well. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> He's so talented, isn't he, that he can do that because he can say, you know, there's some like, I guess, quite profane sort of themes in there. And yeah. then there's this beautiful sort of heartwarming moments. He's a genius. Yeah, and I think like the fact that he, like he has such odd characters in his show but like you it's it works like you you see the genuine aspect of them and the goodness in them just like despite all these other things yeah I I love it so much (laughs) yeah and he's um I think he's got a new special coming out on Netflix too soon so does he yeah that's gonna be oh there we go (laughs) okay Tasha so let's put Ricky aside and let's get into the science which is always uh one of my favorite topics and so a huge reason of why I got you on today, amongst another a number of different reasons, as I said, I've, I've interested in a lot of your work, but a particular paper, which goes back five years now, so I'm sorry to dredge up an old paper, if I had to go back and read it, I'm sure I have to read all my old stuff again, is, is titled Feeling Stiffness in the Back, a Protective Perceptual Inference in Chronic Back Pain. And so this paper was published 2017, I believe. So Tasha, could you just briefly describe the study and also the findings of the paper? Yeah, sure. So this study was, yeah, first a really fun study. It was one of those ones where, you know, I was lucky enough to get this scholarship sort of travel fellowship thing to go and visit a lab in Canada. And sometimes when you get those opportunities, you just have to do something a little bit crazy. So this was that project that you're like, oh man, this is going to be so hard, but I really want to do this. So anyways, what this study looked at is, It was exploring this idea of um, the possibility that there are multiple contributors to feelings of uh, bodily feelings like stiffness or that, you know, trouble when you're difficulty moving. And it kind of, you know, came from the idea that, first of all, if you are stiff, you often, you know, hear sounds and different aspects that pair with your movement. So you like your cracking, grinding, creaking, but also in the context of, therapeutics, if we look at things like spinal manipulation, oftentimes 
that, that really good release, it's all, you know, paired with that big pop. So we have these sort of, you know, innate pairings, first of all, between movement and sound already, but also um, within the context of our own lives, if we've been stiff, oftentimes you have those ecological pairings. Um, So yeah, I was really interested to say, is it possible that adding in extra sensory cues that maybe provide meaning about what's going on in the back to someone would that be sufficient to shift the subjective feeling of stiffness, the perceptions of stiffness in the back, but not shift objective stiffness? So you see this disconnect or, or kind of dichotomy in, in what, what occurs. So what we did is we got, um, you know, a bunch of different people in with um, chronic back pain um, and chronic back uh, stiffness. We also got healthy controls without pain or stiffness. And we had them undergo basically, um, well, there are two parts to it, but the main main part that had to do with sound, we had them undergo uh, a bunch of different sound conditions, all in a randomized order, and we didn't tell them anything about it. Um, And we basically asked them to tell us what they felt was going on at their back. Now, we paired those sounds. We had this very special machine um, called the indenter that um, basically it it almost mimics uh, PA pressure. So it applies force to the spinous process. It's a very controlled rate, um, and then it measures uh, displacement. Um, And so in that way, we can very, very carefully standardize the force that we're getting. So what we did is we held that constant. We always kept that at 60 newtons, but what we told them is that it could vary you know, from 55 to 70, 75, I think, or 70 or something like that. Um, So they were thinking that they were potentially getting things, different things going on at their back. And um, basically what we found is that when we altered the sounds that were paired to that force pressing into their back, that completely changed their perception of their back. So when we had that creak, we, well, we added the sound of a very creaky gate. So it's like creak, creak as it's pushing in. Um, that made uh, them feel more stiff. So mm-hmm. they thought that they were getting more force to their back. Um, and then when we had uh, our control sound, it was actually this really nice um, kind of whooshing sound that almost to me signified that like easy, gentle movement. and. Uh, Yes, we use that one. But when we put that sound paired to the exact same force applied to their back, it made it feel like it was less stiff. And then we found if you took that creaky sound and you made it less creaky over subsequent indentations to the back, that also reduced a feeling of stiffness. So it's it's the, the sound you hear matters. And the meaning behind that sound matters. So an identical sound, but made to, to sound less creaky, <laughs> um, just by changing volume, changes what you feel at your back. And all of this changed in the absence of, of changes to the to objective stiffness of the back. Um, and we also measured muscle activity, and we didn't have any differences in muscle activity between the conditions, because we hypothesized it's possible that when we give them this terrible sound, they might actually tense up. And indeed, they're mac- my back might actually be more stiff, um, but it wasn't. So that was intriguing to us. Yeah. So, wow. So much to unpack. So, so I guess the, the, the catchphrase or slogan of the study might be objective stiffness or biomechanical measures of stiffness in the lumbar spine are the same in people with chronic low back pain and without low back pain. Would that be correct? Yes. They didn't differ significantly. Yep. Although there were, in your experimental group, the people with chronic low back pain reported subjective feelings of stiffness. That's right. And I mean, that's hard because, I mean, we might not, you don't know the baseline before Mm. people had 
their, their feelings of stiffness. But um, the first part of the experiment that I didn't talk about as much, what we did is we explored basically um, what do people um, like how, how do these things relate in both of these groups? And mm. um, so specifically in the back pain group for how does perceived stiffness relate to this biomechanical measure of stiffness? Mm. And we found that they don't, not, none of the things that we looked at, none of it correlated. But what did correlate was when we had them provide estimations of how much force that they thought that they were receiving at their back, that uh, correlated very nicely with their perceived stiffness. Mm -hmm. So people with back pain for the exact same force thought it was greater than did people without back pain and stiffness. And that overestimation was actually what correlated with their feelings of stiffness, which Mm -hmm. is sort of what made us think this seems to be this, this kind of protective thing. Yeah. So, so let let me just start. So I can, the, the cogs are turning in my head right now. So, so people with chronic low back pain estimated that the exact same amount of force that people uh, who had no pain received estimated that force to be greater than those who didn't have low back pain. That's right. Which, so, which made you infer that there might be a greater protective kind of response in those individuals. That's right. Because we, what we did is we actually, we trained them first mm-hmm. is we said, this is what 50 newtons feels like. This is what 60 newtons feels like. This is what 70 okay. newton feels feels like. And then gave them sort of these these anchors. Mm. Um, paused for a bit, let them forget about that. Uh, so it's not straight after. Um, but then went back and tested this. And yeah, what we saw is that for the for an identical force people with with back pain and stiffness thought that it was significantly higher. And this didn't seem to be linked like solely to the fact that, you know, they had pain because Mm. for many of them, they didn't have pain with these indentations. Mm. So it's an intriguing, I think, look into some of the um, assumptions sometimes that we might make, because I, I guess as a physio, we used for wrong or for right, PA pressures a lot of times to have a judgment of, of what might be going on is the back stiff. And mm. here's the thing is I don't, I don't think it's the best measure. Like mm. I would love to repeat some of this stuff where we're using actual movement mm. um, because I think that would, you know, give us a really interesting look into what happens to the velocity of movement when you add sound, what happens mm. to your perception of ease of movement, what mm. happens to, to feelings of stiffness while you're moving. Mm. Because I think all of those things they're really interesting constructs to explore because then they, especially that I think have clinical links. Yeah. And the addition of audio into your studies is, is really elegant as well. So congrats on that. And that was able to change that perception of stiffness, which is, is just so fascinating to me in how some of these higher order kind of constructs such as pain, such as stiffness, such as all of these subjective experience type type terms do not linearly map on to the objective no. measures that we take. So do you think that we can extrapolate um, some of the findings of this study onto other phenomena such as pain, for example? I'm, I mean, I think it's really relevant. I think it's part of the bigger overall picture, because I think if we um, certainly if we look into the experimental literature, there's good evidence to suggest that when we change numerous aspects that could be in the environment, we can give someone a bad smell we can change things in terms of the color that they see on their skin and what we tell people about the resilience of their body and all of these things quite markedly shift their experience of pain to a controlled identical noxious Mm. stimulus Mm. so I think that to me what it 
helps us create, I suppose, is first of all, just an acknowledgement that things are probably a bit more complex than, than we might think. Um, and I feel like I say this a lot, but I think that's a really good thing um, because to me, it kind of opens the door for different ways to target something. Um, but yeah, it also just sometimes by challenging some of these assumptions that we might have, I feel like it also it opens the door for us to also be potentially creative in the way that we approach problems. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Feeling feeling stiff is such a classic clinical scenario that we hear from patients, whether it be knee, shoulder, lower back. It's it is this archetypal kind of symptom that people with pain often complain of, and I feel. I feel low back stiffness. I had a big uh, road trip last week where I drove for four or five hours and my back felt stiff. And I don't know if that's just a, I've culturally learned to call what I was feeling stiffness or whether it was low grade pain or, or whatever yeah. it was, but the word that I would attribute to that sensation or cluster of sensations that I was experiencing was, was stiffness. Mm. And so if somebody comes into the clinic and they complain of lumbar spine stiffness or they complain of hip stiffness, shoulder stiffness, whatever it might be, how, how can we use your study, do you think? I'm not asking you for, to give us one solution here, but just if you could just riff on this question. Like how could, how, could we, how could we use your study to maybe explain to an individual that, yes, you might feel stiff and in a non-patronizing way, open the door to sort of saying that, well, this might not be due to the actual mobility or extensibility of the joint or the soft tissues surrounding your joint. What, what, what are some insights that you might have there for us, Tasha? Yeah, I, well, I think it's very important that you raise that point that there's the potential of that almost being patronizing or, you yeah. know, condescending or downplaying potentially what they're feeling. Because I think that, that you're right, that's certainly not the, what we want to achieve with that. Um, I suppose where I've feel like that could be relevant is where you get people that have come in and particularly if they've tried actually quite a few things. So they've tried stretching for ages and it like they've been told that numerous times and that's quite common. And they're said like, it, it just doesn't help. And to me, then that kind of opens the door for that conversation to say, look, stretching can help some people. We see some people that report that this seems to, to make it feel better. Oftentimes it might be a, a transient, um, less stiff feeling. Um, but actually, we have some research to suggest that there's actually quite a few different contributors to um, the stiffness that you feel. It Your tissues are super important. Of course they are. Um, but it seems like in every person, maybe the different contributors are all at different levels. So would you be open to maybe explore some of the things that might be contributing um, to, to what the stiffness that you feel? And then maybe if we kind of asked for permission to explore those things together, to me, that seems less, I reckon I've got the answer. <laughs> and more like, you know, I actually, I don't necessarily know what yeah. the contributors will be for you. Let's explore what they are. Mm -hmm. Because I guess we certainly see uh, contributors with um, anxiety or fear to pain. And I'm not, um, well, I, I would could easily be convinced that we would probably see similar things in terms of, of stiffness. Mm -hmm. But I think um, like your example of, of sitting in a, in a car for some time, I think it's a nice reminder that there probably, I mean, there always are tissue contributors and other contributors. Because I mean, staying static in one position, we know that that, that can <laughs> generate different um, information coming from the back that kind of says, yeah, you kind of need to move. Um, but it, it's in interesting because I guess the way that we looked at it in the paper is we were like seeing 
framing stiffness as a, a perceptual response potentially to protect against movement. But I also think there's that unique situation where you do feel stiff when you don't move. And I would love to explore that a little bit further and see if you have someone sitting there and you have a stiff back and we, you know, give you visual illusions that you're bending, what happens? <laughs> like, mm. does that, does merely having visual sensory input of moving, is that sufficient to, re to remove or, or reduce those feelings of stiffness? Because I don't know, but I think a lot of times we use many cues to tell us whether or not we've moved, whether or not we've undertaken an action. And certainly we see vision is very strong in other conditions. Um, so as long as it is not too unbelievable, I wonder whether things like that actually, like maybe you can even just have a little bit of trunk movement, but we overshoot visually what you're, what you're doing and just see like, does this stiffness reduce? With the rise of our virtual reality, this sounds like a very, uh, <laughs> this sounds like a very, not easy, but it sounds yeah. like a very doable re research question. Yeah. yeah. Well, and um, it, it's so intriguing because I think it, it gets complex. We've done a study where we, um, it's not published yet, so I'll be kind of vague about it, but we had a virtual reality bike and we were basically messing with what people saw. And the, the really interesting thing is um, your interoceptive awareness, how, how um, accurately you're able to detect your own heart rate, um, that determines whether or not messing with what you see either kind of helps or, or harms or hurts. <laughs> mm. So if you're more in tune with what's going on in your body and we mess with things, it's seemingly like you detect that incongruence mm. and then it's like, nah, I don't like this. Mm -hmm. So it, it raises the possibility to me actually in some of these studies that we've done, particularly when we're looking at movement or anything like that, is to really um, get a sense of their probably proprioceptive accuracy, but also even interoceptive accuracy if they're doing anything aerobic, because it does seem to matter with the degree to which they um, experience benefit versus not from some of these things. So when we're talking about introception and extraception and proprioception, all these sorts of terms, I'm, I'm, I had a chat with uh, Abby Tabor on this podcast about predictive processing and Bayesian inference and active inference and all these kind of concepts. Are we, is this, are we, are you kind of thinking along similar lines here? Is this something you're interested in as well? Yeah, I think I'm certainly not as well-versed as, as Abby or, or someone like Mick is in these areas. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a nice and interesting framework um, for, for which to make hypotheses. Um, I think the challenge that I have, and I would love to have a discussion with them about this is I, oftentimes we have a, um, something, a, a, a hypothesis or anything in science, and we do our best to disprove it. Um, we choose control conditions. We choose all these different things. And the hard part I find sometimes with things like predictive processing is I don't know what would disprove that theory because there, it's, there, there's so many complex inputs that it becomes very difficult to say, oh, actually, this doesn't support it. It's like, oh, I didn't think about this. Therefore, I have to consider that other input. And that is not a that is that is wide for any theory, mm. I think, in some mm. sense. And as it develops, you probably get that ability to mm. to figure out experiments. It would be really impactful to you know massively move things forward or or disprove parts. But mm. yeah, it's an it's an interesting an interesting area, that's for sure. It is. It is. It's fascinating. It's on the surface, it looks capable of of answering so many questions. But I, I share a similar 
not skepticism, but it's something that it needs to answer for. And it's, and it's this concept of it being perhaps unfalsifiable seems to be lingering and not just in regards to pain, but to consciousness as well and all these other sorts of frameworks or experiences that it's being applied to. But uh, I just read uh, Anil Seth's book, Being You, about how he's sort of applying this framework to consciousness and mm. he addresses it in the book and sort of explains it away which is which is interesting so I'm trying to get uh Mick's going to come on the show at some point and, and talk about predictive processing as well so oh, that'll be wonderful because I think yeah. like where I kind of got yeah a bit trapped was like how far down does that extend mm. like that idea of of only prediction error mm. coming up like are we arguing that that extends all the way down to the peripheral synapse mm. and Yes, we can frame an, uh, I think, an argument about that, like mm. a prediction of continued body integrity, I think is what um, uh, Mick was talking about in his last paper. Mm. But what sets that? Like, is that the default? Is how do we, like, it's just so interesting um, mm. to, con to consider. And yeah, I don't know. I, I love reading that stuff. I do mm. find it probably takes me probably double the time. <laughs> Of a regular paper <laughs> of course, yeah that's but, a sign of a, a good paper right it's yeah gotta, that's right you really think. apply yourself yeah so get, sort of getting away from predictive processing a little bit which is more of a, a meta level discussion if somebody if somebody comes into our clinic and this is a bit of a thought experiment for you tasha and they their chief complaint is that of stiffness mm. with or without pain and thereafter some mobilizations of their spine which is a uh, that would be a very common clinical scenario yeah. I would uh, hypothesize. What, what should we do as a clinician? And this, I just want your opinion here. I know you don't have that, that one answer. So should we, I guess there's a couple of different ways I want to ask this question. So not just should we do a mobilization because that comes down to the, the clinical and individual scenario itself, but what should be the explanation of the intervention that we're giving? Can we say, for example, ethically, that we are improving the mobility of your L4, L5 facet joint, and then this is going to change your pain? Or should we encapsulate that story in I'm going to be pressing on your spine here a little bit. It might have many non-specific effects and it might change your perception of stiffness slash pain in your lumbar spine. How would you address that given what you know about the multi-sensory experience of stiffness and also pain? Yeah, um, it, it's a hard one. Um, I think I would argue we probably don't have the evidence to suggest that we can say I'm changing the movement at the L4, L5 facet joint. If you watch, um, you know, actually live x-ray or anything like that, when you're doing a, a press into the spine, yeah. you're not solely having movement. And yes, I know we can do different techniques and, and um, you know, orient people differently, but to think that one segment is necessarily separate from all of the others and that mm -hmm only movement of that one segment segment would be relevant to um, any response, I don't think is supported. I mean, you look at some of the randomized control trials where they let um, clinicians choose the specific mobilization or manipulation that they'd like to do, and they compare it to standard, and there's uh, standardized, so you just do one, and there's no difference. And I know that there's a lot of controversy with, with those trials, and oh, it should have been done better, it should have been done differently. But I guess... I would say based on upon the available evidence, we, we, I don't think that we can say that. Um, and I think the challenge with it is, is that 
it does reduce a very complex experience to one very small part. I am actually not arguing that movement at L4 and L5 might not be a contributor. Maybe it is, it might well be. But what I'm arguing is that probably by focusing solely on that, first of all, it's creating an exact location of a problem for someone that then as soon as they have anything else happen again, their first thing that they need to do is to fix that. And I think I think that's a problem because it creates reliance upon health practitioners in general, but also it it takes the power away from them. They're not empowered to do things uh, or less empowered to, to be able to, to do things uh, for that situation themselves. Mm. Um, I think probably what would be more supported would be to suggest that there's actually many and varying um, different effects. I mean, lots of times having someone that you trust and that you you think is there to treat you, first of all, that is a very calming aspect. Having someone touch you, there's a lot of different, you know, activations that go just when we touch. Um, Having a force to the back, working on that area, all of those things can have, you know, physical contributions. I mean, we do know that if you think about viscoelasticity of tissue, if you press on things, oftentimes they do move more afterwards because of the way that our tissues work. But for to to say that perhaps that's the only contribution of something, I think that doesn't that doesn't quite hold because we can see that these these different contributions. So I guess probably how I'd frame this is um, to be quite general about it and say, you know, a technique like this, um, many people will report that they'll feel less if it um, is, you know, for a couple hours afterwards, what I'd like to do is maybe use this and then actually practice some different um, active movements um, while that's feeling relaxed and feeling a bit better. And then see if we can incorporate some of those, you know, movements into your um, into your everyday life. Um, because ultimately what we want to have here is something that you're able to do. And I think, I'd hope actually probably most clinicians are, are doing that, um, but who knows? <laughs> no, that sounds very reasonable. And that's, that sort of approximates exactly my uh, interpretation and practice as well. So it, it, it is, it is hard though, isn't it? At the, yes. at the clinical coalface and, and, and the, and the patient is coming in and they've probably heard uh, narratives from other healthcare professionals. Let's not beat around the bush here. There are some pretty uh, dodgy narratives that are out there still in, in healthcare land and they come in and, and they are focused intensely on this stiffness of a segment in their spine. It is re- it's a, it can be a very challenging discussion to have. And and mm-hmm. and I like the way you kind of your explanation was. You can do a little bit of manual therapy, but you can attempt to change the message over time once you've built rapport in a non-patronizing way and all these sorts of things and shifting that focus away from that isolated segment. You know, that's that's the the axis of evil for them. And I, and I guess it it probably is also even within what might seem to be those really straightforward cases, really exploring, I suppose, like what's going on in their life right now? Mm. What's what else is is happening? Are there are there what are the contributors to why it didn't feel stiff last week and to what it, why it feels stiff this week? And I think most people will automatically go to the mechanical activity contributors, but we can also, I feel like, purposefully explore some of those other ones by saying like, look we're complex, man. (laughs) Like it, it would be remiss of me actually not to ask you about some of these other things because everything contributes to what we feel. So let's explore where you're at. um, And then we'll have some different strategies. Cause if I just give you exercises and actually you're really stressed out at work and I'm just adding extra on your plate, 
probably not going to help, is it? <laughs> like, let's let's see where you're going um, and see where you're at. If you've ever had the flu, you'll know that your back can feel stiff without any sort of mechanical insult or etiology, right? So anything that can cause some form of psychophysiological phenomena within your body is probably capable capable of influencing all of these experiences. And that's something that I like to, to say to a patient, you know, remember when you had flu a couple of, or you had COVID and yeah. you had all these leg cramps and you had this back pain and you had this sensitivity everywhere, similar. Yeah. With and I think that it kind of, yeah, it, it raises my interest and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but within immune contributions as well. Mm-hmm. So things like inflammation and Again, not holding on to that as a sole cause, but I think inflammation is way more complex than we might think. Like we have links between that and our microbiome. So if things aren't going very well in our gut, that has communication into our systemic circulation and that can increase inflammatory levels in the body. And so if you, you know, had you know, tended to to feel stiff in a certain area and suddenly it just comes on all of a sudden. Perhaps exploring diet is really good. General physical activities are actually really good. Daily physical activity has been shown to help with, with inflammatory levels. So, and even actually different thoughts, like negative affect has been shown to be linked to increased um, inflammation. So I think it's just, there's, there's very good even if we wanted to say biological only, there's very good biological reasons, I think, to consider lots of these other contributing factors. Um, but of course, it, it's not just that. <laughs> it, they, of course, all work together. Yeah, love it. Who would have thought that pain is is complex, right? It's, <laughs> it's great. So, so Tasha, where to in the future with, with your own research and where do you, where do you see it all going in the future? There's there's some charges being sort of leveled at, at the science of pain uh, recently. How can we use science, which is classically third person observational kind of approach to generating knowledge? How can we use that approach to study something that is subjective first person experience? Do we need to incorporate and I know, I know that we are, or should, should we continue to incorporate other types of research such as qualitative mm-hmm. research, uh, research, phenomenology, all these types of things. So mm-hmm. just riff on that for a bit. Where do you see pain research going in the future? Yeah, sure. I, th- I mean, I think it's a really, really important question because you, I think sometimes when we're discussing some of these concepts, it can sound like the patient is separate to this. These are all these processes that are going on and, oh yeah, there's a person. And that, I mean, really doesn't hold (laughs) in in actual life and and when you're working with someone. So I guess one of the things that I've been really interested in and certainly that that my group has has really shifted towards is we're doing quite a bit of co-design with people. So first of all, some of the, for example, are um, virtual reality and mediated reality, where we do the weird body illusions. Some of those um, technological things, we're working right now with people with painful conditions to and physiotherapists to develop models that we can integrate in the clinic. Because I think that's been the, one of the biggest challenges is that we do some of this cool stuff in the lab. And it has very little ability to be quite easily implemented in the clinic. And that's a problem. Um, so in that sense, I think it's using that lived experience to um, help develop technologies that have a, a hope of surviving a clinical environment and that are that are consistent with what people in pain want. Um, but I think that you're right. It is also, I feel like, incorporating that that qualitative component to things um, and really exploring people's 
experiences when we're doing this. So many times in all of the studies that we do, we have a, we ask them different questions at the end purposefully. Um, and I know that still is a little bit separate and I think you can do it a little bit more embedded, but um, as an example, um, in the, the study, the stiffness study, at the very end, we said, did you know, actually, um, every single um, pressure to your back was the exact same? And the shocked responses that we got, to me, that was really powerful to actually confirm that whatever we saw there was real. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, no, I knew that. They were like, wait, what? And you're like, yes. Um, but I think though, there's, there's a lot of merit, I think, in exploring ways that we can do this better. And I think there's just some amazing, um, pain consumers and advocates that, um, are really doing a lot of things to push this area forward. And I think teaching us so many things. And I, I feel like that's been very helpful. Like I think people like Keith Meldrum, Gillette uh, Bolton, like they're just amazing people. Actually, Louise Truern from the UK, they're all just amazing advocates for things that I think really helping to keep that person level focus. Because I guess I know there's been um, certainly a lot of debate within and, and rightful criticism, I think, um, within the literature about kind of pain neuroscience being all about, you know, third person and not considering the person. And I I find it's really hard because I feel like, first of all, things are always shifting. And so a lot of the initial pain neuron science things, they were challenging an incredibly sticky biomedical view that had, had honestly never really, well, not fully been challenged, I think, and still existed in a lot of different teaching programs and existed in a lot of different clinical practice and and still does today. But some of those original, I feel like, aspects of it, sometimes you can't give that whole picture right at the start. And maybe we didn't know that whole picture right at the start. So I guess where I feel excited about the field is that the point of it is that it always is changing and growing. So if things that I've said 10 years ago aren't wrong, I don't think I've done my job. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they should change. I should get it wrong sometimes. We all should get it wrong sometimes. And I think it's being open to that new literature and adapting it as you see, because I, man, there's just amazing work going on right now. Like I think it is such an exciting time to be in, in the, the science and the research area and mm. working in the area of pain. Yeah, love it. So I think that reminds me of uh, Einstein had a quote about his relativity theories. Like, I hope I'll be proven wrong at some point. Knowledge grows one funeral at a time, which is a famous uh, quote from Max <laughs> Planck. And it's kind of true. If you, what, what's the fun in arriving at a, it's impossible anyway, but there's no, de- there's no destination to knowledge. We are at the beginning of infinity. And I think we're always just going to keep having more and more problems to solve, which is, yeah. which is exciting and fun. Yeah. So just finally, Tasha, I'm going to ask you a very controversial question. All right. Is pain a perception or is it a, sensation one one word answer perception beautiful okay tasha thank you so much for for joining me for this wonderful conversation where can listeners find out a little bit more about you where can i point them towards are you on, yeah, are you on social sure. media yeah so i'm um, probably best place to look is twitter um so that's at tash underscore stanton and then I'm in the process of getting a web page up that actually gives a little bit more detailed things um, about our group. Um, so sort of watch that space and I can share that with you. Tasha, thank you very much. Oh, absolute pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Tasha Stanton. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.